0: Want to become an AI trailblazer in the product world? Pragmatic Institute's newest workshop, AI for Product Professionals, is your ticket to generative AI mastery. In this hands-on training, learn to master ChatGPT GPT and prompt engineering to transform your product strategies, rapidly create content, optimize workflows, and make razor-sharp product decisions fueled by data. Don't just keep up with the AI revolution, lead it. Seats are limited. Enroll today at pragmaticinstitute.com slash workshop.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Pragmatic Product Chat series, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product management, product marketing, and other market and data-driven professionals with some of the best minds in the industry. I'm Rebecca Calajaris for Pragmatic Institute and your host for this episode. Today, we I'm super excited to have on a good friend of the show and of mine, Diane Pearson. She is a marketing expert, advisor, instructor, and most recently now a published author of How to Innovate on Purpose. And the I've always liked talking to Diane, but I'm extremely excited to have here on her. I've read the book and I think the challenge of innovation is one that we've all struggled with. Like we're all charged to go out there and be innovative. But like, first of all, what does that mean? Second of all, like, that's great. How are we gonna be innovative and do our day jobs and and what's going to be innovative enough. There's There's a lot of questions in there. And what the book does and what Diane does is really provide a lot of process and structure that really helps you kind of put in a framework within your organization on how to understand and align around innovation. So I'm super excited to have you on, Diane. Welcome.
0: Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Always good to talk to my friend, Rebecca.
1: Yes. All right. So you've been on here before, and I know lots of people talk about it, but I want to talk about sort of like what made you decide to write the book, right? What made you decide to write How to Innovate on Purpose? And why is it like such sort of a culmination of so much of what you've done in your career?
0: Well, you know, I was trying to think about that. And a lot of people have asked me, well, what, what finally made you write it? And I think what finally made me write it was not only all the pragmatic students, but all of the clients that I've been working with who've asked me, well, how am I supposed to do this?
1: Mm -hmm.
0: How do I do this? I mean, how am I supposed to figure out how innovative I'm supposed to be? How am I supposed to convince my team to do this versus that or or to focus here versus there when I'm a product manager or a product marketing manager who they they don't report to? I don't own the budget. Like, how am I supposed to do this? But it did start, it, it started way back in my career Primarily with a series of mistakes and blunders and foolishness that I personally (laughs) did.
1: We've all had those. Lessons I've learned by tripping and falling.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So so a lot of those, those uh, skin knees and scraped elbows from, oh, I didn't think about that. (laughs) And and then a lot of things I did as I went through my career that I thought, I I need to change this and I need to do this differently. And then when I was a, a leader and an executive, I started trying some of those ideas and and helping give my teams a little bit of room and i was so amazed with what i saw back so it you know it all started i, I had this presentation with some executives i was trying to get some money for a project and i and this is the first thing i think about when i think about writing this book is i went in and i was super excited i was very new at the time i was a product manager i've i've done both product management product marketing but that's what I was doing at the time. And I went in with my presentation and I was all excited. And I said that this is going to be the most innovative thing we've done with this particular product in a decade.
1: Mm.
0: I hadn't been working for a decade at that time, but I figured it sounded good. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the executives in the room who, who ended up being a mentor of mine over the years said the first thing that I needed to learn, which was he said, Well, what do you mean by innovative?
1: Mm. Mm.
0: and I didn't really have an answer for it. And so I I tap danced through it, and he knew I was tap dancing, and everybody did. And I thought, well, you need to know what that is. Mm -hmm. You know, I went through my career, made that kind of, you know, verbal mistake, that lack of alignment kind of thing. When I was an executive, I had some ideas about how we might be able to listen to the market better and get better information, and get more aligned with what we were telling our board versus what was actually happening in the release plans. Mm -hmm. And so we built this thing called a cone of knowledge. And I don't call it that in the book, but that's what we called it. I said, let's just go find all the market research we've already done because we've spent a fortune and hours on all this research. Let's just sweep it into a pile and see if there's anything there. I mean, that's fast and easy, right? They came back with physical binders. They came back with PDFs. They said, hey, this person's going to send me this. They're going to contact this consulting company. I said, just get this stuff from two years. You know, everything else, probably a little too old. Mm-hmm. They came back with piles of material. And we found two ideas right away that we could just do. Why don't we just fix this? We were shocked because, you know, individually, these, these pieces of research, they were good. But altogether, mm. they were amazing. And it was all right there. Love and then, that. you know, teaching with Pragmatic, all of the things that we talked about in Pragmatic and, and the great way of thinking that we taught and that, I, that we still teach. But people kept asking, how do I do it? How do mm-hmm. I do it? And so I thought, well, let's, let's pull all this together into just this how-to manual for innovating on purpose.
1: Absolutely. So, yeah. So it's definitely a culmination of like the mistakes you've made, the successes that you've had, right. And the combination of what we teach and being market focused, but really like, what does that mean when the you know rubber meets the road and I need to do something, but
0: right. before how we get to it,
1: <laughs> exactly. Right. But before we get into the, how I do think you, you touched on, and I think it's a really important place to start is like, let's define innovation, right? What does something, if, if something is innovative, What does that mean?
0: Well, and that is the first big thing, because Mm -hmm. everybody has a different idea of what innovation means. And innovation has become this sort of apocryphal sort of, you know, hits you like a bolt of lightning. It's this miracle. You've got to be a genius. And it's just not really true. Innovation is, is more workmanlike. It's more practical. But you do have to define it. And so, first of all, if you're in business as we are, whether it's for profit or not for profit, that's a really important thing to remember, too. Consumer businesses, B2B, very serious businesses like healthcare and security to very light businesses, you know, like, like clothing and shoes and things like that. Innovation begins with the market and market mm-hmm. need. And, and we're going to come back to that in a minute because people say, well, OK, but my market can't tell me what they want. Or, But they don't know. I mean, think about the iPhone. Think about this or that miracle. They didn't know. They couldn't tell us. We'll come back to that in a minute. But it is always based on a need that the market has, whether it's expressed or not. It's also if you're a for-profit business, and even if you're a not-for-profit, somebody has got to be willing to pay, which means it's got to be a reasonably high priority. Mm. You know, that that depends a lot on how much your market has to spend, uh, lots of things. Somebody's got to be willing to pay. Even if you're not for profit, somebody's got to pay for it. Yep. It's also got to be something that when you think about a solution to this, this market problem that you found that they're willing to pay money to solve, it's got to be a solution that they can co-opt and, and that they're, they're capable of understanding in some way. So it's got to be something that resonates with them when they see it. So it's got to be intuitive. Really good example, Early early technology, we were so enamored of technology that it was tech for tech's sake. Mm
1: -hmm. We you
0: think about any any software you download now, any device you buy? Our expectation is, hey, I'm going to be able to turn this thing on and use it. After that, finally, innovation is going to be what you and your leadership decides that it is. Mm. And so some organizations are going to define innovation very differently than others. Innovation can be doing cool new things with your existing product for your existing market. It can also be, we're going to look at all of this technology that's out there now, and we're going to apply that to problems that haven't even been solved yet. Mm -hmm. And we're going to twist it on its head a little bit and come up with something entirely new. There's a whole spectrum of innovation, and it really depends on those elements that I just gave you, but also the unified definition of an organization that's trying to get to someplace in a market. So it's about the market. It's about the level of future thinking you want to do, the level of surprise and and difference, And it's also about who you want to be as a company. Sometimes we forget about that piece, too. But you bring all those together. Innovation is much easier to define.
1: Yes. I love that there's like some common factors, right? That it's got to be based on market knowledge. People have to be willing to pay for it. They have to be able to adopt it. Right. And as you said, it's got to be sort of in line with the organization's goals and their like what what they're looking to achieve. And then one of the things you lay out really well in the book, I think, is that innovation spectrum, because even with those factors, there's still a whole lot of range of what innovation could be. Right. And you lay out sort of like four levels of type of innovation and you started touching on a couple of them. Right. The reactive, which, as you said, was like for our current users making it better. Right. Still based on their feedback, still something they're going to be willing to solve, you know, that they want to solve. And then you move on. Right. And it kind of goes through the spectrum. And I don't know if you want to just walk everybody through the four steps. I think they're a really good sort of next level of, okay to even be called innovation, it's got to be those first four things. But then let's talk about what we mean at innovation and what our innovation appetite is in terms of risk, reward, investment timeline as an organization so that we align around that.
0: Yeah. So so the spectrum came about because of this this idea of trying to talk to your leadership. So I'm, I'm thinking about being a product manager, product marketer, and hearing your leaders say, hey, I want some real innovation this year. I want to see some new thinking. We hear that a lot and they mean mm-hmm. it. We all mean it. But what do you have that can actually help you have this conversation? And that's where the innovation spectrum came from. So its purpose was to help everybody get on the same page with What are we talking about when we talk about innovation? And the four phases are reactive, responsive, inventive, and disruptive. I mean, most of us think about disruptive when we think about innovation. Mm -hmm. It's got to be so new. But if you do walk through those steps, you can see that each of them requires effort. Each of them requires focus. And they also are all something that can make a business really successful. Mm -hmm. It it just depends on what you're trying to do. So if you think about reactive, reactive is all about existing users, not even buyers, but users. So if you're the kind of business that is very, you're in an industry that's, that's very stable. It's been around a long time. You've been around a long time. You're the leader. Everybody loves you. You want to keep them loving you. And so reactive innovation is all about keeping those users loving you. So they can tell their finance people or or the buyers, hey, we love this. We can't live without it. It is the best thing in the world, and it's only getting better. Yes. They do what we want. That's pretty innovative to hold on to that, even though it's reactive. Now, reactive has some risk to it because if you're only reactive, if you're only focused on today's customers, eventually you've got to know someday the market is going to change a little bit. Uh, and it may be decades, it might be a century. I don't know when broom technology, like actually sweeping brooms changed, but it took a long time. Yeah. Uh, before there was actually <laughs> like a Swiffer. But you know, you think about all the technology, we use hardware and software, the way we use it, the way we buy it, all of that changes. So if you're only focused there, you just have to realize that with that product, eventually either the problem's going to go away or the market is just gonna say, hey, I can solve this in a different and better way. So risks and benefits there, and it's definitely innovation. Then you think about responsive. Responsive is, if you think about timeline and level of innovation, it's just one notch up. So it's more about buyers. It's a little bit more about what the leadership of your customers wanna see. It's a little bit more about, oh, you know what? This might include things like changing the pricing model, but it's, it's probably about maybe adding some reports or adding some insight, knowledge. And I'm always thinking about software because that's mostly the industry I came out of, software, data, and analytics. So you might start adding things that other people in the company can use. So you might expand the influence of that product a little bit, but it's still basically solving the same problems. Mm-hmm. It's just a little bit more responsive and anticipating what leadership is going to want, what, what maybe buyers are going to want of users next year. Then we start to get into this area. And if you look at that, if you look at the spectrum, those first two talk about what do you want? What do you want next? Now, all of a sudden, we're talking about we. Mm. And, and here's where you really shift to that, that beginning to do more self-determination as an organization, more leadership of the market. So, where do we want to go? Who do we want to be to the market? We start thinking more about that in these second two phases of innovation. When you think about inventive innovation, we are going to start thinking about maybe we can add more to this product than people are really thinking about today. Maybe we can anticipate some leads. Maybe we can even use some new technology or new pricing models or new delivery. I start the book, and I know you, that you've read it, but I start the book talking about a retailer that is famous for revamping the entire model of retail. They Mm. used the latest technology. They used the latest delivery methods. It it blew everybody's mind. It was Sears. They allowed you to buy things through the mail, through the mail. They delivered things to your house through the mail. They sent out a catalog. Initially, they didn't even have stores. I mean, we all think of Amazon as being that crazy groundbreaking, wow, mind-blowing company, but Sears did it first. And so inventive innovation is about solving that same problem in a really different way, a much better way, using what's available today. And then finally, when you think about disruptive innovation, disruptive innovation is either this problem has always existed and nobody could figure out how to solve it, or this is an emerging problem that people Mm. might not even be able to articulate, that somebody has anticipated given the signals in the market. Here's the thing with that, though. Everybody says, yeah, but you can't go looking for that in the market. You absolutely can. And when you think about those those four phases of innovation, in the earlier phases, people are always saying, no, that's not innovation. In the later phases, people are saying, yeah, but that's just guessing. Mm. The main point of the, the innovation spectrum is to say, look, what are we trying to go after? And then later we can talk about how do we go listen to the market to get it?
1: Yeah. And I think that one-two punch, you do a really great job in the book, right? Because all of those types, reactive, responsive, inventive, disruptive, are all types of innovation. Like you said, we tend to to think of the sexy disruptive ones as what people mean by innovation. But when you when your organization asks you to be innovative, there's actually very few organizations that we work with, sort of that large enterprise organizations where they really do have sort of the organizational structure, the risk tolerance, the investment levels that lets people go play out in that that just sort of R&D makeup things world. Some certainly do. We all know the, the post-it note story, right? But I think that's the conversation. And you talk a lot about this, both the key to innovation is alignment and market grounding, right? That is the, the sort of essence of it. And I think laying out that spectrum and what that means and how Risk reward investments timelines change based on those is one of those really great spots where you set up the ability for all of us to have healthy conversations to align the organization early on around expectations.
0: Well, and, and I'm glad you brought that up, Rebecca, because sometimes when you know as a product manager, product marketer, I know that I thought, well, you're telling me you want me to innovate, and the market has some great ideas, or I'm finding these great things out there. Or somebody, somebody else, the business has brought back this cool idea. Why don't we do it? But there are those financial realities, too. And, and when we have the conversation with leadership, they know that. But it sometimes is hard for them to share that with us, not because it's secret, just because they're thinking about it differently than we are. They just assume we know. right? I mean, that's one of the reasons why it's easier for a startup to go after disruptive or, or inventive innovation, because this is all they're going to do. Yes. They don't have any other competing priorities. And, and whoever's going to invest in them, they want them all in on this. I mean, 3M, that was kind of a miracle story that they even went after Post-it. There are companies, and and we can think of those companies right off the top of our heads, the ones we know about that are always innovating, but Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's the way they're built. It's hard for public companies that have got a flagship product that's been around for a decade that everybody relies on to say, hey, let's just not pay any attention to that. Now we'll go do this really crazy new thing.
1: Right, and and a lot of organizations are set up for the amount of, failures that sometimes come with that heavy innovation spot, right? I mean, it really is there. And like, to your point, we can all think of in Silicon Valley, like some areas that are really set up for this, but that is not the majority of us. And I think, you know, you think about it sometimes we're like, why didn't the leadership just tell us what they mean? I don't always know that we know how to articulate it. Right. And the best yep. things that the best product managers I've worked with ask me really good questions, things that I just assume every like, you know, tripping along. Oh, everybody knows what I mean by that. And they ask me questions, which also realized that I hadn't fully flushed it out. Right. Like I was using a shorthand that myself thought, oh, that's probably everything in there. But those questions and then this kind of questions about what phases are we thinking about? What are we looking to be able to kind of give and take is something that we can have a great conversation with leadership? Because it's not that they're keeping the information from you. It's right. part of our job to help them walk through the implications and be able to provide guidance on that.
0: That's exactly right. And and having, you know, and you you and I have both been on both sides of that conversation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as you get into those executive roles because you learned it later in your career as an individual contributor or a a manager, you come in thinking, well, they understand the difference between organic growth and inorganic growth. They understand the difference between ROI and EBITDA Mm -hmm. and and the competing priorities, and they might not. And and it's simply because they didn't need to know it before. I always advise product managers and product marketers, go find a finance buddy and learn this as early as possible. But if you don't, That's one of the reasons why I give these really specific questions to ask in the book, because I don't know what to ask. And here's the other thing. When when leadership talks about innovation, they might be thinking about innovation through acquisition of other companies. And and so they're talking to you and the board and the annual meetings about all this innovation. And when it comes to your product, if if you asked them, they'd say, oh, no, 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 we want you clipping right along the way you are. Keep talking to those users. Keep your pipeline full of the things they want prioritize them. So you're giving them the most for their, you know, most bang for their buck. But no, 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 we we don't want you thinking about this.
1: Right. Oh. Right. Like oh, yours yeah. is the product that yeah. needs to fund the other group. That happens it's too, fantastic. right? It's We oh, all yeah. have horizon one products. They are what keeps the lights on. And that's where you know, maybe you don't want to have risk, but that revenue is what is letting some other groups play. That's not a, a, an insult to the one who's doing the Horizon One. Again, you're keeping everyone employed, right? Exactly. Uh, but it is understanding yeah. how those, those pieces work together.
0: Exactly. And if, if we know that, then it is up to us, but it's also our opportunity to react to that in the best possible way and share it with the rest of the team, keep everybody focused. It makes a huge difference. And you can also check to make sure you are working on the right things. If you don't really know this, there is no way to, to do any sort of check. Is my backlog full of the things I'm supposed to be doing or not?
1: So you laid out, like we said, this book gives you a lot of what you're going to do, but also how. And there's a lot of tools in it. And it's also like you really break it down into five steps. And we've we've already started to delve into the first step because it is really important. But I think yeah. for our listeners, just understanding sort of the big picture five steps would be super helpful. Can we walk through those?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we just spent a lot of time on that stuff. I also want to remind people at the end of each chapter of the book, there are to do's mm-hmm. and Initially, I was just going to put down, these are the 30 minutes you need to take on each of these things. We can spend a lot of time talking about this, but once you've absorbed this way of thinking, you will have a lot better answers to these questions after a 30-minute meeting with your leadership. If you walk in with these questions, you're going to come out with much better insights. So it's going to take you longer to read the book than it will to get yourself into this mindset and this, this ability.
1: And I do love hey, gotta, that about it. It's super action-oriented. Like I said, there are tools, there are examples, like here's your to-dos. And it, it really does like help you walk the walk in a very actionable way. But yeah.
0: Yeah. So we did the first piece, which is align with leadership on what is innovation for the company and then specifically what's my role in it. Yeah. So the very first step is you've just got to get clear with leadership. And yes, you can have lots of conversations about that, but, but a 30-minute conversation ought to get you ready for the next four steps. So and before we
1: go on to the next four step, there's two concepts that I think are really great and there's more than that, but two that we haven't talked about. We hinted about it. We talked around it, right? It's the uh, the idea of a corporate strategy and a contributing strategy, right? This is what we're talking about, right? When you are talking about like the, the leadership that's always talking to the board about innovation, but then there is what is the strategy of your domain and your group and how does it feed into that? And I just thought that was a really nice sort of mental structure, Because there can be numerous contributing strategies into a corporate strategy and understanding the importance of knowing both, but also knowing what you can control in the space in there, I just think is such a great concept that you laid out.
0: Well, let's talk about that a little bit, because that's where, you know, to make this practical and and to bring this home for a product manager or a product marketing manager, I do have to know the overarching strategy of the organization. So I know my place in it. But what I really need to do my job every day is the contributing strategy which is how do I contribute to the overall goodness and goals of the company? And like I said just a few seconds ago, your leadership may be only talking about the innovation and the excitement and the acquisitions, and your contributing strategy may be, well, you are going to keep the lights on for the whole company while we do this, which is huge, but if I don't know that, if I don't understand that, my team doesn't understand that, we might waste a lot of time on on coming up with all these ideas and proposals that – Leadership doesn't have the bandwidth to look at right now and doesn't want to. It's not the year for that. So as you think about, well, okay, well, how do I have this conversation about strategy and vision? I mean, you know, they put the vision out there and I don't know how that relates to what I do. I've got four questions to ask your leadership. And and you ask these about the the overall corporate strategy, but also your goal, which is what problems do we as an organization and, and me and my product solve? What are the products we build to solve that? And I think about that more as the kind of products. Are we a software company? Are we a, are we a hardware company? Are we a service company? Are we all of the above? And, and then what do I do? You know, How far would you like me to go to explore other types of solutions? Then what about the markets we serve? Do we serve big businesses? Do we serve small businesses? How about ed tech or med tech? Do we serve consumers or businesses? Who do we serve? And then who do I serve? And then finally, where do we fit? Are we trying to be the innovative, cutting-edge company, or are we the fast follower? There's all sorts of ways to describe that. But again, where am I supposed to try to be? First, best, cheapest, most comprehensive? Where are we trying to fit? Yep. Now, if your questions need to be a little different, that's fine. But if you don't have four questions to go ask leadership, use these four and say big picture and then me.
1: Yes, and part of it is is again aligning around everyone's idea of a big idea, right? Like my big idea, if your big idea, like they could all mean different things. Let's break that down and define some of the guardrails, right? That help us really figure out where we're going to go. And the other one I think that you'd put on as a question also for that discussion is sort of like, okay, with this in mind, this is great. Like I'm in. Like let's do this. But with this in mind, here's where I'm going to need to spend more time, which means here's where we're going to need to spend less time like let's really overtly talk about the handoffs that this strategy is going to mean to me and to the organization and i think that doing that early is really smart and really critical
0: yeah and you know i'm going to i'm going to go back to one other piece that's right in the middle there that is the strategy so we kind of talked about the vision and we talked about the corporate vision and then the vision for my products or my part of the business but We also have to talk about here's where we are today and here's where we're trying to go. So if I'm going to try to get to a vision, most companies talk about their vision. You could probably even say, I'd be willing to bet I could put together a vision for my product too, but very, very seldom do we actually talk about where we are today or agree on, well, this is who we are today and where we are in the products and the markets. And so the next phase, once you know where you sit, what you're supposed to be doing with those four questions to those, the four answers to those questions is, where are we today, and how am I going to get from where we are today to the vision? And this very first piece, this is your strategy, and this is your high-level, general direction sort of strategy. I know that here's where we are today, and here's where I'm supposed to go. And for the next year, here's what I'm going to do to get there. I can't do everything all the time, and this leads into what you just said, Rebecca, mm-hmm. which is and and this is so critical to have this conversation because you can't just pile all this on to what you're right. already doing. Yes. So I'm gonna do more of this and less of that. Now, maybe that's if for example, and I, I use a lot of examples from legal tech because I worked in legal tech for a long time. So if, for example, my product today is for trial attorneys to prepare for trials in the US and strategically. My vision is to open up that market to not only North America, but South America. So, okay, today we're just US, just the United States, but I've got to do, my vision is to be North America and South America. Well, can I do all that at once in one year? No, but based on my market research or what we all believe or what leadership has told me, the next best place for me to go is Chile. Okay, so in order to get to that leadership of North and South America, this year, we're going to expand into Chile and we are going to prioritize all the rest of the markets for years, two, three, et cetera. Now that I've got that, when I start thinking about more of and less of, well, I kind of take a look at my backlog because chances are my backlog is full of stuff that's really, really important to people in the United States, but maybe not very important to people in Chile. Mm. As a matter of fact, in order to even launch in Chile, I'm probably going to have to do some new things. So I'm going to do less for our existing market in the U.S., and I'm going to do more that pertains to that Chilean market. Now you've got a way to verbalize your strategy for your product in about 30 seconds. It should take you to get to a draft of this, to go talk to your leadership about, talk to everybody else and validate. It should take you a couple hours to get to that.
1: I was just thinking that we spent a bunch of time on, on step one, because I think it's really important. You will not succeed if you do not have common understanding and alignment here. But it's not like it doesn't take that long. It's just critical. And we skip exactly. It. Yes. Exactly.
0: Yeah. If, if, you, if you skip it, you're going to spend a lot of time going back to it in meetings and trying to justify it where if you had just done this step yeah. in a couple hours and you could go into every meeting and say, well, let's take a look at this again. Does this fit or not? Yeah. And, you know, people may not agree with it, but it's really hard to argue with.
1: Yes. Yes. All right. So step one, defining yep. sort of goals and getting alignment. What's step two?
0: Step two is do a scavenger hunt, build a cone of knowledge, organize your current knowledge. So the second step is, you know, we're all doing all this research all the time. It costs a fortune. It takes a lot of time. We're using it horribly. So step one, just take what you've already got and put it in a pile. Get it into a pile so you can take a look at it and start creating knowledge statements. Hey, you know what? We know this is true. And when I say true, I really mean actionable. I don't really like the w- word true, mm. but it's, I, I can use this knowledge statement to do my job. Development can use it. Sales can use it. We can all use it. We've got enough data on this to say, yeah, you know what? Act on this. Here's a knowledge statement. What we also start to realize is, boy, you know what? We thought this was true and it's not. <laughs> Or we've got some opportunities laying right in front of us that we haven't even explored. Let's just go do those. And then you're gonna find that you've got knowledge gaps. So if I'm supposed to be working in the Chilean market, we haven't even talked to anybody in Chile. Mm-hmm. We don't have a rep there. We don't, we haven't, I haven't even done any searches on LinkedIn to see what these people do for a living, how those lawyers are different than our lawyers. Haven't looked at it at all. Big gap. But first just sweep what you've got into a pile. It's it's fast, it's cheap, and chances are you're gonna find something. I have never done that and not found something that wasn't a substantial benefit to the organization I was with. And it, it was either me or, more often, the really, really smart people who did it on my teams. And they came up with some incredible stuff.
1: I think that's really true. I think there is a fallacy sometimes. People, and, you know, like, oh, we don't have any information. Like, oh, you know, they go and they get it. and It needs to be like we need to do market research and we don't have any. Now you probably don't have the exact program you want, and you probably don't have all the details. But you have so much information. There is no way in today's day and age, in in a large court, in a software company, you do not have a plethora of information.
0: Exactly. And the first time I did this, and and you know this was very ragged and and like, well, let's try this and see how it works. Yeah, let's see what happens. <laughs> but, team came back. And and I remember one guy coming down the stairs with binders in his hands. I mean, this was, you know, that wasn't ideal, but it was physical binders full of stuff. Mm -hmm. It was about, I don't know, 12 months old, six months old. And his mouth was hanging open. He said, they're up there spending a fortune on research. (laughs) And we started putting this all in one spot and organizing it. And I talk a lot in the book about how to organize it. The good news is, if you've got data scientists if you've yeah. got, there, there are emerging and, and fairly established software tools to do this now. Yep. Even six and seven years ago, there were not. And if you don't have them and you can't afford them and nobody's going to buy them for you, use an Excel spreadsheet with links to Basecamp or Box or Dropbox mm-hmm. or anything. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be high tech. Don't let the tech daunt you. I mean, there there actually is good tech to help you with this now. But I did it when there wasn't. And and a lot of, you know, until, again, about six years ago, there was nothing that really helped with this. So don't get too daunted. Start with the low-tech stuff, sweep it into a pile, get it organized around something, personas, industry, just pick a way to do it. Don't worry about it. And look at it. Find the statements, find the gaps you've got to fill. Because then what you're going to do is you're going to go out. And when I say find opportunities, this is where you're going to stop doing just this scattershot research. Because what we tend to do is we just say, oh boy, we really wish we knew the answer to this question. Okay, let's go find it. And some little group in the corner of the company finds the answer. And frankly, they may or may not even use what they find. And then they throw it away or they hide it someplace, you know, unintentionally, but it's, nobody can find it. Nobody even knows it exists. And so now that you've done this whole idea of knowledge gaps, Here's the place where you are going to start to do exactly what you do for your products and your marketing plans. You're going to prioritize the market research you do. This one's huge because, you know, everybody wants to be market-driven. Everybody says, well, I know I'm supposed to be market-driven, but I can't get anybody to talk to me. And, you know, I I don't have any more money for research. And, you know, there's there's a lot of reasons why you can't do it. But if you're already spending some money on research, which Rebecca, you said it and it's true. Most companies are. Passively, overtly, whatever it is. Prioritize what you're spending. Make every conversation with the market count. Use third parties to get baseline common knowledge and then go out and ask the specific questions.
1: It's just like going shopping, right? You're taking stock of what you have, realizing, holy crap, I have a whole bunch of stuff in this pantry. And then you're only going to get what you need and you're going to get so much closer, so much faster so much cheaper than you think you are.
0: Faster, cheaper. You get better information. You have a wider breadth of information because if you already know some things are true, uh, unless you're doing benchmarking like NPS scores or, you know, there are reasons to keep checking something as a benchmark and a trend. But if you've got an answer to a question like, how is the law different? How are these lawyers different? How many lawyers are there? Don't ask again. Wait a year. Go ask something else. And- the questions you ask, and who you talk to. So this this piece is really, really important too when it comes to that innovation spectrum. Because if you look at the innovation spectrum, is actually a precursor to what you're going to do to go out and decide how to listen to the market. And so if you think about that, it's the market understanding. Mm-hmm. So you've got the innovation spectrum. If I am a reactive innovator, if my What I am told to do, what my strategy is, is I want to increase the love that my existing customers have for my existing product. Well, I'm not going to go out and talk to everybody in the universe. I'm going to talk to my users and which users, probably the users of either the companies at risk, the ones who don't love us so much, and the ones who really do love us and why. I'm going to talk to the people who haven't been talking to me very much, those quiet 80%. That's from Pragmatic. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm going to talk to users. But if I'm trying to do inventive innovation or disruptive innovation, even if I'm trying to do responsive innovation, chances are these users, it's not their job to know what people are going to want them doing in a year. It's not their job. Their job is to do their job today. Yep. I'm going to have to talk to other people. And when I talk to those buyers, let's say I'm, I'm talking to lawyers again. If I'm talking to a trial attorney lawyer who uses my product, they're going to know about using the product. They're going to know about their job. Their chief, the department head, is going to know how their job is going to change in the next year. So if I want to be responsive, I'm going to have to talk to that person. But let's face it, those people, they don't really know the technology and the tools that are out there to solve their problems. It's not their job to know that. But I'll bet somebody we know does. Mm -hmm. Our development team, our data scientists, other departments and data scientists, there's stuff being invented all over the world that we might be able to use. So if I'm listening to the market, if I'm out there finding opportunity, I've got to be listening in a way that will get me what I need. Too often, we're talking to users, we're talking to users, we're talking to users. And and we're frustrated because they're not telling us, well, yeah, I need you to build me this thing that implants a chip in my head. And, (laughs) you know, I mean, I I don't know. It's not my job to know even as the product manager, product marketing manager. But there are so many things to know about the market. If you're going to go out and listen to the market, our listening is what's holding us back from being inventive and disruptive innovators. It's also when we, when we think about the questions we ask if we are reactive or responsive innovators. Stop asking questions people can't answer. Mm. Don't, you know, don't waste your time because it's confusing them. It's frustrating them. They don't want to talk about it. Think about your innovation, because if, you are, if you're trying to be disruptive, you're going to spend a lot of time in the market, a lot. And you're going to be listening to technical innovation, legal innovation, pricing innovations. You're going to be pulling this together in a synthesis that requires some pretty sophisticated thinking. It's not bad or wrong to do either one. We've already talked about that, but you got to know which one you're doing in order to listen to the market, to do the right kind of research. And this is the next place that I think we really, we spend a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of effort and are not getting back nearly what we should because Mm. we're not doing two things. We're not prioritizing what we need to know most, and we're not looking at where we should go get that information before we do our research. If we do those two things, you don't have to have any more money to spend on market research. You don't have to have any more time. You just look at what you're doing, what you're supposed to be finding out, and shift it accordingly. I mean, everybody wants to move faster, but if you put together that response based on the, on the knowledge you have of what innovation means, now all of a sudden, at least you know, hey, we may be moving slowly toward this understanding, but we are moving toward it. That's why in these two phases, you're going to start building the prioritized list of what you need to know, which turns into your release plan and your roadmap. This to me is one of the biggest things we don't do that when I thought about this, I just thought, oh my gosh. I cannot believe we don't do this. Think about how much time product managers and product marketers spend on roadmaps and release plans. How much time product marketing managers spend on messaging and calendaring. And think about how little organization there is around the research we do in the market. There is no market research or innovation roadmap. There is no market research or innovation release plan. The organization doesn't agree on it. Research is haphazard. It's done all over the place. It's not aggregated. It's not planned. And it's not used and it's not aligned with what we're trying to do. And that in this middle piece is just the head exploding. Like, why have we not been doing this from my perspective?
1: Yeah. And you do a great job of of laying out sort of like the marketing understanding spectrum, which mirrors sort of the innovation spectrum, which like helps you, depending on where you've decided you are in that spectrum, understand who you need to talk to, how and about what, right? As well uh-huh. as an innovation map that helps you, as you say, kind of Map out and share what you know, identify the gaps and how you're going to fill them. So it really, again, puts process around an area where we're all sort of like throwing stuff against the wall today with great intentions. But let's let's figure out how to do this in a way that's going to move the strategies forward.
0: Exactly. And that's having been on on many sides of that equation. That was what I really wanted to help people do was take these steps that make sense in your organization, in your world and just follow them. And do the first step really quickly. Get to a draft of all of this stuff really fast and hone it as you go along. Yep. But yeah, you've got to have a way to just step through the thought process and come up with a result. And that
1: was the idea. Excellent. All right. We've gone through the first two steps, but I know there are three more. So we could touch on those a little bit quickly for our audiences so they kind of see the cycle that you walk through would be amazing.
0: Well, and and actually, we, I would say we've sort of gone through number three as well. Because when we when we went through it, what we talked about was, mm, uh, you know, you put everything in a pile and then you prioritize and go find things out in the market. But then, and, and this is the case for most of us who are in product management or product marketing, is we work with this whole team who executes on this and, and needs mm. to focus too. We've got to share knowledge with them. So once you've gone out and gotten the knowledge, you've got to have a plan for distributing it in the company. I'm actually, I, I'm working with a client right now who is struggling with this because, what we've, our case in point, one of the things we've discovered is that buyer personas stink. They're terrible. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing as a good buyer persona out there. The closest is page two cool. of Pragmatic's buyer persona, which walks you through step-by-step how a buyer is involved in the buying process. Most buyer personas look like user personas, except they're about buyers. It, it talks about using the product, yep. benefiting the product, terrible. You've got to know who your audience is, how they like to get information, where they get their information. Sales is a really good example there. Sales doesn't like to read pages and pages of materials. It's not because they can't read. It's because they don't have time to read. And reading stuff in advance of unknown calls with clients doesn't work for them. So you've got to communicate it. And then the last chapter too, it's about these unknown changes. And I wrote this book during COVID, which is why I I decided we needed to have this, this chapter that addressed. How are you going to deal with change? Things that you cannot expect. And, and it's a little bit different than a black swan that Talib has come up with. I call them meteors because I consider, first of all, COVID to be one. But it's just mm. how am I supposed to be ready for the unexpected? How am I could I have been ready for COVID? And the short answer is you can be ready to respond to an emergency if you know your market. You know what you're supposed to be doing, and you know how this has impacted you. One of the things you can ask your customers ahead of time is, let's talk about the zombie apocalypse, just, you know, a, a conversation. What if if your business was disrupted? Would you still eat our product? Mm. And ask yourself these questions. You don't probably even need to ask them, you know, do you have a pivot? Is there another industry that would need it? This is actually kind of a fun, if a bit dark fun, but this is kind of a fun thing to sit and think about. What kinds of things could happen? What are the outcomes of these events? So it's not COVID. It was that business was disrupted. It was that people weren't going out. I think the example I use in a book is, well, you know, here I am, I've got this, this wonderful specialty food store, but nobody's going out. So right. maybe I, I do food delivery boxes. But, you know, what if, what if there's a flood? Well, my food delivery box, maybe it needs to be delivered by boat and it needs to be things like, you know, cereal and sugar and kind bars or something to keep people alive until the floods go away. Mm-hmm. It's not so much the thing that happens as as how it impacts your market. And right. that's something that I think we can all be ready for. Again, with without a huge amount of prep, there were companies that were very prepared. I don't know. Do we have time for me to tell the the airline story? Rebecca, I know you've heard it a million times. Let's do it. All right. So if you think back to COVID, it was such a great petri dish. Oh, that's terrible. Okay, forget about the petri dish. It was such a great experiment in how to succeed or fail as a product. And airlines were one of the first companies that did this. I wish we didn't have COVID to to share that with. I wish it would have been something else. But as instructors, we used to fly all the time. And so we had really huge status on a couple airlines, usually, you know, whatever they were. And while we were all thinking about much more important things early on in COVID, one of the things we were thinking about is, well, when this is all over, when we are back out there again, none of us are going to have any status. That's going to be terrible. We won't be able to get in the clubs and things like that. That week... Two days apart, I got two different emails, one from an airline that has a reputation for knowing its market, listening to its market, really being in tune with its market, and another one who very famously does not. (laughs) The first email said, hey, look, we know you have other things to worry about. You are not thinking about this right now, but just in case, your status is going to be your status until we open up again for one year after whatever that is. So just don't worry about it. Take care of your family, take care of yourself. We're with you, we're worried about you, we're here. The next one I got two days later, the subject line said, great flight prices to Cancun. (laughs) And I'm just looking at that and thinking, nobody knew COVID was coming, nobody knew. It's huge, it's terrible. But one airline, within a matter of days, because they had made this investment in understanding their market and their role in the market, they got an answer out right away that was on point. The the terrible, sad airline, the Cancun airline, they actually followed them a couple days later with the same offer. As a matter of fact, everybody did. It just went boom, 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 boom. Everybody copied it. But everybody remembers who did it first. And everybody remembers that first idiot email they got. Yep. And you can't do that unless you understand your customer. So that's why we have to prepare. And that's why I put it in.
1: Love it. Love it. All right. I know we're almost out of time, but there's one more thing that you brought up that I do want to touch on because I think it is an interesting concept for people to think about. So we talked a little bit about like, you've got to talk about trade-offs because like you have other things to do or you're thinking about innovation. But one of the things that you talk about that's so, that you think of as so key to having innovation is the role of a market strategist. So uh-huh. tell me a little bit about what, what you see as that market strategist role and sort of how it fits in with an organization.
0: The market strategist is something I came up with and didn't call it that several years ago. And the way it fits in is sort of on top of, or, or in as a more as a more strategic generalist than a product manager and a product marketing manager. You notice I keep saying product management, product marketing management. While the book is written more around a product focus and a product response focus, product marketing management, there are a lot of examples of that as well. Yeah. And here's the thing, because these roles that people play in companies, and especially in B2B where the the buying decision is complex and and messy and, and users are buyers and buyers might not be users... And also, it's not always about buyers and users, especially if you are going to be more of a inventive or a disruptive company. You have to be looking at technology, cultural changes, legal changes, regulatory changes. It's a different kind of role that brings both of those together at that listening and integration at synthesis level. And so I decided we have to have a market strategist. The market strategist will gather all of the information into a pile and then work with product management and product marketing management so that they can mine the information they need for their pieces, but also ensuring that they get all the pieces that they need. So if I'm a market strategist and I'm in the inventive or the disruptive phase, I should be talking to our CTO, for example, probably once a month, once a quarter. What are you hearing? What's going on with the technology? What could we do? What is our toolbox to solve problems? that toolbox might be pricing, might be pricing models. It might be delivery. It might be messaging. Somebody's got to cut across product and marketing in a way that right now, those two roles, there's just too much falling through the gaps, Mm. even though those two roles and the people in them are excellent. And that's why I think we need the market strategist. And that's why I put it in the book.
1: Yeah. No. And I think you talk about in the book too, like, I mean, it can be a role It can be a hat or a head, right? It can be a distinct role, which is ideal. But like, if not, it's a hat. And I think what's also nice is it's a hat that you can grab, right? It's a hat that you can start to articulate what you're doing and why. And this sort of strategic piece of it. And it starts to build an understanding of that effort that that is very focused on strategy and potentially gives you a, a growth path or a goal, right? You don't have to wait for the company to fund it and be done, but it's something to start, hey, I can do this role. I can talk about it. I can articulate it. So the organization understands this effort and that gives you a path forward.
0: And that's the key point. You're exactly right. Don't, don't wait for the role. Don't even go pitch the role. Just become the role. Yeah. And yeah. if it's too much to do, become the pieces that are your role today, plus the strategic pieces. But yeah, this this is a hat. Doesn't have to be a hat, but we have to do it. In order to innovate on purpose, we have to tie all those things together. And and anybody can do that where they are today.
1: Absolutely. All right, Diane, we talked about, as is her way, about a lot of different things today. If you could get our listeners to do two things differently tomorrow based on what we talked about today, what would it be?
0: Super practical. Two things. One, put together a draft of the strategy and vision. So those four questions, put together what you think your role is today, what the vision is for that role and what the strategy is. The more than a little bit more of doing this, a little bit less of doing that. Take it to your leadership and create that that sense of what you're trying to do. So that's number one. Number two, match the market research you're asking to do. You can't control others. Just what you're trying to do, match it to that discussion. So if you're supposed to be nurturing these existing customers, talk to users. If you're supposed to be out there finding that disruptive innovation or growing into new markets, make sure that your research, like everything else you're doing, is more toward the vision and less of things that might've been more BAU. Go do those things. That will make a big difference. Think like a market strategist. Mm.
1: I love that. Think like a market strategist. Also, I know Diane won't push it, but I will also say, go ahead, grab a copy of How to Innovate with Purpose. There was a lot of good tools in there. It was a very interesting read with lots of sort of actionable pieces. And Diane, I think you have some other tools, right? That you're that you're oh, offering you. to our listeners because you love yeah, us. There
0: isn't there is an opportunity. I would love for everybody to send a note to info at innovate on purpose. So info at innovate on purpose or go to the site, contact information, however you do it, but info at innovate on purpose and send a note that says, I want the tools. I will send you a kit of the best tools, the, the ones that people have come back and said, yeah, these are the ones that are our favorites. There's five of them. And I'm also going to, uh, every 20 to 25 of those, I'm going to give away a free book. So I know that the podcast lives on the site at Pragmatic. So I don't want to make that just, you know, 10 books, but as, as we get these collected up every 25, I'm just going to take that 25 and I'm going to give away a book and I'll do that through 2024. Awesome. So if it's 2024 folks, send me a note. I want the tools info at InnovateOnPurpose dot com.
1: I love when people give away goodies to the listeners. I always like to arm them with stuff. So it's not just here. I'm going to tell you a lot of stuff, but look, we got, we got the secret stash goodies. It's kind of fun.
0: Secret stash goodies. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Hashtag
1: secrets dash goodies. All right. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Diane, for joining us today and for sharing so much information and so much of the highlights from your book. Uh, It is always a pleasure to have you on.
0: Thank you so much, Rebecca. I hope everybody out there starts innovating a purpose.
1: Absolutely. All right. That does it for today's episode. Thanks everyone for listening. And don't forget to join us next week when we tackle another great topic designed to help you elevate your product, your company, and your career. (laughs)